March 3rd. Accompanied Andrew Bonner in one of his rounds through some of the most miserable habitations I ever beheld. Such scenes I never before dreamed of. Ah, why am I such a stranger to the poor in my native town? I've passed their doors thousands of times. I've admired the huge black piles of buildings with their lofty chimneys breaking the sun's rays. Why have I never ventured within? How dwelleth the love of God in me? How cordial is the welcome even of the poorest and most loathsome of the voice of Christian sympathy? What embedded masses of human beings are huddled together, unvisited by friend or minister? No man careth for our souls as written over every forehead. Awaken, my soul. Why should I give hours and days any longer to the vain world when there is such a world of misery at my very door? Lord, put thine own strength in me. Confirm every good resolution. Forgive my past long life of uselessness and folly. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my James chapter 2, we're going to look at a, a figure in church history this morning that you have likely never heard of and likely will never hear of again unless you do your own research and study on him. But uh, James chapter 2, James chapter 2. All right. Well, just follow along with me. I'll read it. I know we're, we've all got probably a few different versions here. But we'll see if you can follow along. Here we go. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no works, is dead. It, or so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. All right? Let's keep that in the back of your mind as we look about this uh, kind of new character, if you will, in the history of God's church that He has promised to build. Remember, we talked about Genesis 3.15 and the promise of the Messiah, and who really the church is, is those who throughout the history of the world, those who have been clothed in the righteousness of God, which is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus and His blood shed for us, okay? And Jesus Himself said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to repentance, and few there be that find it. And throughout the history of the church, that has been the case. So I'm going to... Uh, uh, introduce you to this man that his name is John Ashworth. Okay, John Ashworth was born in 1813 in Rochdale, England, near very near London, England, <clears throat> and he was born into a very poor home with only a mother. Ultimately, his father died, and he only had a mom, and uh, she was a godly lady, and uh, and through, so through his poverty, through different circumstances in his life. He came to know Christ um, as his own Savior. And so I want to tell you, or basically I'm going to read to you, stopping here and there, um, kind of the story of what he uh, did in his life um, that is much unknown and, uh, but will be greatly rewarded in heaven and hope that, it, hope that it stirs your heart, okay? So here's what he wrote regarding London, okay? He says, London, the best and worst place in the world. And I would say we could kind of say that about America. The best and worst place. The vast emporium of human energy for good or for evil. How many thoughts are suggested by, the, by its mighty operations. Its wealth and benevolence seem boundless. Its poverty and misery hopeless. Yet light and truth contending with error and darkness gain daily triumphs. The black cloud of moral depravity is giving way before the bright beams flowing from Christian sympathy. And hope sits smiling while contemplating the cheering result. I have traveled the, uh, the streets of the great city by night and by day, beholding both its magnificence and its misery. I have walked through its palaces, parks, and picture galleries. Okay? And that, uh, I, would, I would say... In, in, in describing our experience, mostly in this room, that's been most of our experience. In other words, the, the brighter side of life, okay? The richer side of life. No one in here probably describes themselves as rich, but we are. All of us in here are, okay? Um, not maybe if we were measuring some sort of net worth. But the way we get to live our daily lives, we are rich. And we have spent our time in America's palaces, parks, and picture galleries, so to speak. When he's saying, I've, I've been in all these places, but I've been in its, in its asylums, hospitals, prisons, and penitentiaries. 
Have you been in America's asylums? Do we have them? We do. I remember um, through a job that I had visiting places that they're just tucked away that you don't really know we're there up in the up in the hills and the hollers. There'll be buildings and facilities where they're the throwaways are. The throwaways and our of our society are kids that maybe were born with some sort of mild learning disability or physical disability, but parents who don't know God and their lives are in darkness, and so they throw them away. And there they are. And that's a, the version of asylums that he's speaking of, okay? And, of course, he said prisons and penitentiaries. I've spent a good bit of time um, in, on the inside of jails doing repairs and different things, and, and I've had even opportunity to do some ministry and seen those places. I hope you've gotten at least an opportunity to see some of these places. And if you haven't, if you haven't, just go to Walmart in Shelby at 10 o'clock on a Friday night. You'll see a little glimpse of that. Or maybe the Dollar General at the right time, right? Okay, and you'll see a little glimpse of, of these people, as we might call them, or those kind of people, as we might call them. So he's, he's reminiscing or he's, he's speaking of the the great divide between these two worlds, so to speak. He says, But no place produced so deep an impression on my mind as the home for the destitute. And so he's speaking of essentially a, basically what we would call a homeless shelter, okay? Um, you know, the way it operated or whatever was probably different, but the home for the destitute, all right? Here, hardened villainy and hopeless wretchedness were written on every countenance. All the woes of the apocalypse seem to have overtaken the truly miserable inmates. I remember my first uh, experience getting to go. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, so I would go to the downtown Atlanta uh, Rescue Mission Homeless Shelter, and uh, we, our church would do services there. And I just remember seeing those men and, and thinking, why, why, why is that not me? Why is that not me, right? And um, So this is the same kind of place and, that he's, he's speaking of. He said, I, I felt a degree of veneration for the men whose Christian philanthropy had provided such a home. In other words, he was like, I was, I was like, wow, this is, I mean, it's amazing that somebody would do this uh, for, for these men. Now, take a little pause. You guys are all, well, not all of you, but many of you are at the age right now that you're starting to get this kind of question from all the adults around you, right? What, what, what question is it? When you start getting 11th, 12th grade, what's everybody asking you? <laughs> yeah, what you gonna do with your life? What's what's next, right? And and you're supposed to have this amazing answer, aren't you? You're supposed to have it all laid out, aren't you? And and then what is especially in our world at large, and sadly maybe sometimes even in our Christian environments, what's what's the expected good answer? What's the expected you know like the answer that's going to get you the biggest pat on the back usually? Yeah, some, I, I, you know, you, I, I'm going to go to this university and then take and study this uh, subject or do, you know, and, and, and uh, but for you to just, for you to just be maybe honest and be like, I really don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you get that pressure, don't you? Like you're supposed to, you're supposed to have something kind of figured out and planned out and it, and it needs to be in the vein of money making, you know, 
I mean, how are you going to provide for yourself? You know, how are you going to take care of yourself? It's rare that maybe a young person might refer to Proverbs 16. I would suggest you go read it sometime. How the Bible says that, that uh, a man makes his plans, but the final answer is from the Lord. The final answer is from the Lord, right? He's the one. We think we're planning our way, but God is totally in charge of these things. And then how about this? How about what would it be if a young person said, you know, really, I'm not sure exactly where God will take me, but I know He's called me to take up my cross and follow Him and die to myself. And so um, I'm not sure exactly where that will lead, but that's really my only desire is to die to myself and follow Jesus. Adults might say, hmm, and, and they would probably give a pious answer. and be, Oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. But, but, you know, maybe you should still consider, you know, do, do this first and do this second and, you know, and this will really open up the doors over here. And, and they've all got the, all these ideas for you, right? So um, what would it be? You know, I'm referring back to this now. If you said, well, you know, I just kind of want to preach the gospel to poor people. <laughs> I just want to take the gospel to people that nobody else cares about. Everybody else is forgotten. Oh, really? Okay, well, you know, how are you going to make a living? Well, I don't know, but God's promised that whoever seeks His kingdom first, that He'll provide all these things will be added unto them. They don't need to take, they don't need to be concerned for their clothing and their shelter and their food. God will provide for them. And so what was happening is God was doing this kind of work in John Ashworth's heart in the midst of the very religious uh, situation that he was in, okay? So he says, I'll skip a little bit just for time's sake. He says, um, Is it not the duty of every man whose heart God has touched to do all he can for the redemption of such? If they will not come to us, then we must go to them, meet them on their own terms, and provide them with places of worship adapted to their own condition, trying in the spirit of love to gather in the outcast and to tell them the tale of the cross. These reflections induced me to make a vow that on my return to Rochdale, remember that's where he was born, I would at once open a chapel for the destitute. Okay, so he'd seen the home for the destitute. He said, I'm going to open a chapel for the destitute, uh, uh, a place for worship for the people that really nobody wants to be around. Okay, the, the, the people that are gross out there in society. And he said, so I consulted my friends and endeavored to enlist them in the undertaking. How do you think that went <laughs> for him? So when he started sharing with all his friends, pastor friends, you know, I want to start a church for that's really just going to reach the poor people, you know, and it'll be for them. What kind of what kind of uh, objections? Well, here's three, and this will make sense to you. And remember the book of that we just or the passage that we just read. Okay, what says one? Are you going to teach the poor? that our churches are not open to them. We have plenty of room. Why don't they come? Well, why don't they come? Isn't that probably the objection that you would meet with, that you would hear today? Poor people are welcome here. They're welcome at our church. I mean, these people, yeah, bring them. <clears throat> but what's the, what happens? So, so we just read James chapter 2, right? But this is written in a culture where uh, where he's when he's describing this rich man and this poor man coming into their assembly, we have to kind of translate that over into our society what that might look like. Okay, we, we, you know he talks about a 
uh, a rich man that comes in with gold rings and all that. Well, <clears throat> that might just mean that might just mean a visiting celebrity preacher, right? In our culture, you notice how oh, brother so and so's here, and he gets he gets lifted up in praise and put in the chief places, and everybody is going to go have a conversation with him. But let the let the guy that comes smells like cigarette smoke come in. That everybody pretty sure they've seen him walking up and down the sidewalk before. Let him come in. Now, he's going to end up sitting in the back probably. A few people will be nice. Say, hey, welcome, glad you came, you know. And they run and wash their hands real quick after they shook his hand, right? And, um, <clears throat> and you know, a few people might say, you know, when, if you have like one of those handshaking times, a few people will enter back there and shake his hand. And they'll say, glad you came, you know. Might say that. But then when church is over, you know, and, and during it, he might be like, oh, this is kind of nice. You know, the music is, seems to really be stirring my, my heart. And boy, this, uh, the, the word of the Bible there, that seems interesting. I'm not sure I'm understanding everything. But, but then when it's over, <clears throat> as soon as he begins to pay attention to the conversation maybe around him, if anybody, uh, if, if he's not just kind of ushered out the door, glad to have you, glad to have you. Um, is he starts hearing everybody talk about the football game that they're going home to watch, right? Pot roast that's in the crock pot, you know? And so essentially what is said to him is be warmed and filled, just like they said, just like James said in chapter 2. You meet somebody who has a need and you say, well, hope, hope you have a good day. Be warmed and filled, right? And that's what we might say to that man as he tries to get on his moped and get it cranked head back out to where he came from, right? And so that, and, and then, but then if you have a burden for those people and you begin to maybe reach out and maybe you want to start a ministry amongst them, you're going to hear, well, that can come to ours. For what? To hear people that profess to be Christians talk about the NFL? Thought this place was about Jesus, right? So, that's the kind of first obje objection that he got, right? And then here goes the next one. He says, <clears throat> what? Says another, are you going to, to widen the distance between the rich and the poor, opening for them separate places of worship? You'll do them more harm than good. You know, so that's a, an objection that seems to make sense on the surface, right? Like, hey, you know, um, I mean, we're all the same, you know, so why are you going to have a separate place for worship for them? <clears throat> Have you ever thought what it might be like to have been born in those situations and suddenly to come in to in the midst of a group of people who've always had, um, who've, who know how to read, who know how to read well, who know the hymns in the hymn book, who know who, when the pastor says, turn to, to Exodus, whatever, they know how to go, all right, here's Exodus. They know, they know all these things. And, you, and so we might decide to be kind, as we should, to these people, but we're not really understanding where they're coming from. And they might not even know how to read. And so, indeed, there may need to be places for them that are gentle and do what we did maybe for our own children and teaching them the Word of God and teaching them who God is and loving them, right? And so that's what he was trying to get across to his friends. And then here goes the last one. And this one is worse. And I've experienced this kind of, I've heard this kind of thing from people, okay? He says, what? Says a third. You expect to get a congregation from amongst the degraded? If you tap a barrel of ale every Sunday, you might, but not otherwise. So in other words, in our vernacular, that might be, 
Well, if you have some free weed, they might come. I mean, that's the, that's the arrogant, sarcastic attitude that basically was, was put forth here, right? Now, here's what happened. I am now ashamed to say that meeting with the above objections and finding none to help me, I gave up. But several years later, while laboring under affliction, I remembered my broken vow. And again, resolved that if the Lord would deliver me, I would do all I could to bring sinners from the highways and hedges. I prayed earnestly that He would give me grace and firmness of purpose to endure any amount of ridicule, abuse, misrepresentation, opposition, or imposition. That He would take money matters entirely into His own hands and send help as it might be required. Believing that God would bless the undertaking, I determined not to consult any human being but to go at once to work depending upon God's help and blessing. So he's finally determined, you know what? This is something that I'm just going to have to go alone, me and God, okay? Now I want you to remember this man's name forever, John Ashworth, okay? He didn't want his name to be remembered, but he was, he was uh, serving Christ. I took a small room and got 2,000 handbills printed, not as easy as today, announcing the opening of Chapel for the Destitute near the bank steps, Braille Street, or Bale Street, Rochdale, okay? So in a rough area. Adding the following invitations. Okay, now remember, this is 1800s, England. They speak a lot differently. We, we, we might would say it a little different now. Here's what he said. Ye houseless, homeless, friendless, penniless outcasts, come in rags and tatters, come poor and maimed and halt and blind. Come of whatever color or nation, creed or no creed, come. Come then to Him, all you wretched, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Fifty of these bills were fixed on blue pasteboard, so like a, some sort of poster board, with a small loop of red tape at the top with nails in one pocket and a hammer in the other. I went to all the barbershops and lodging houses in the town, requesting permission to hang up the cards. In no place was I refused. And I returned home in the evening rejoicing. On Sunday morning, or one Sunday morning, to me, a memorable Sunday morning with about 500 advertisements in my pocket, I began to walk through the back streets and bills and with bills in my pocket, or back streets in low places. And where I saw either man or woman in dirt or rags, in other words, he was just looking for rough people, He's looking for, looking for the poor people, looking for the people that nobody really cares about. I offered them an advertisement and respectfully requested them to come to the service. If they could not read the bill, I read it for them. Some made merry with it. In other words, some of them made fun and laughed. Others stared at me, but very few promised to come. Soon after dinner, I entered in one lodging house and asked permission to see the inmates. I was shown into a large room containing 16 persons. I pulled off my hat, bowed to the company, and began to distribute my bills. One young man with a short pipe in his mouth twisted my paper into a spill to light his tobacco and burst out laughing and began to dance a jig in the middle of the floor without seeming to take a notice of his having burned my bill. I said, you can dance well. Can you do anything else? Yes, I'm the best at everything, was his answer. Well, let me hear if you can read this paper as well as you can dance. He took the bill pulled the pipe out of his mouth, stood on an old wooden bottom chair, and began with a theatrical bearing and loud voice to read. But his voice faltered 
He quietly stepped down and laid the paper on the chair, observing, I wish I had not read that. It reminds me of better days. Seeing the dancer break down, there was a general call for Jenny Lind. The person honored by that name was partaking in a tea of tea in the corner. She earned her bread by singing in the streets and bars. She took the bill and read it through, and amidst the clapping of hands, resumed her tea. A surly-looking man with a flat nose and bloodshot eyes growled out, I thought there was no one in heaven, earth, or hell that cared for us, but it seems there is somebody who does. Yes, I replied, that paper is true. I am come to tell you of Jesus' love. Now which of you will be the first to promise to be at the chapel for the destitute tonight? This was met with a loud laugh from all the company, one of them observing, That is a capital joke. Here, let me further describe the characters I was trying to induce to attend a place of worship. I have mentioned the dancing man, the flat-nosed man, and the singing woman called Jenny Lynn. In addition, there was one they called Peg Leg. This man was polishing his wooden leg with a black lead brush. On asking him why I did not use blacking, he replied that black lead made his trousers slip up and down better. There was a thin man with thick black hair, well greased with oil. He had a piece of broken mirror in his hand and was trying to divide his hair in the middle, seeming very particular about it. One man, Collier-like, sat on his heels beside the fire. He had a long black beard and a dirty, ragged red slop for a shirt. There were two old men, both poorly dressed, but one of them much cleaner than the other. The cleaner one had a large pair of spectacles on his forehead and a gray-headed old woman for his wife. All the rest of the lodgers were fit companions of the above, but those more particularly specified we shall have to refer to again. Wishing to get someone to volunteer, I laid my hand on the shoulder of the thin man who was trying to divide his hair and requested him to give a challenge to the whole house. There was a general shout from them all that if I got him, I should have the worst of the lot and they would all like to see Bill Guest in a chapel. That was his name. Yes, said the wooden-legged man. If Bill goes, I go. And me, said the flat-nosed man. And me, said the red slop. And me, said Jenny Lynn. And me, said the old man with large spectacles. Bill very coolly observed they better mind what they were doing or he'd surprise them. But the whole 15 declared they would go if he went. Well, then I go, said Guest. And now let me see which of you dare show the white feather. In other words, who's going to chicken out? We bargained that I was to call for them at 6 o'clock to show them the way. The next place of call was a miserable looking house in which sat three men on a short plank supported by a few bricks. There was no other seat in the place. A square table with only two legs, only two, a table with two legs, was reared against the wall and I accidentally knocked it over. A few broken pots and an old rusty knife were all the furniture in the house. Anybody ever seen a place like that? You think they exist around here? They do, I promise. Many of them. They're just always on the other side of the tracks, as they say. Everywhere. In the hills and the hollers and the in the hoods. They're everywhere. They offered to go with me to the chapel if I would pay for a gallon of ale. One of them said he never went to a chapel except when he was in prison, and he rather boasted of having been there six times. He was literally clothed in rags and was without a shirt. He offered to give up his share in the gallon of beer and go with me to the chapel if I would send him a shirt. Now I have you, he said laughing. Send me a shirt and I go. And will you bring your friends with you if I do, I asked. Yes, said they all. We will come if you find him a shirt. They seemed greatly amused with the fix 
in which they had placed me. But a few minutes later, I astonished them by producing a clean shirt. My next adventure was among a number of idlers on the stone bridge. While giving them my advertisement, a blustering young man, dirty but expensively dressed, came up and wanted to know what my papers were about. I handed him one. He read it and said, Mr. Ashworth, look at me. You see a man that deserves damnation, if ever a man did. I am the unworthy son of the best of fathers and mothers. They set me a good example, but I got among wicked companions and have spent in cursed drink hundreds of pounds, wandered from home to home. Now I'm a wretched outcast. But if you're a wanderer from home and not a Rochdale man, how do you know me, I asked. I heard you give a sermon in Barry last April and heard you point out the curse that tracks the steps of those that dishonor their parents. And believing you intended it for me, I felt at time that I could have killed you. But all you said is true. There's a dark lookout for every young man and woman who willfully cause sorrow to their parents, especially if they are like mine. Will you come to the chapel tonight? There's mercy for the worst if they earnestly seek it. Yes, I will come, but I shall never have mercy until I repent of my conduct to my parents. It was now five o'clock. In an hour and a quarter, I should have to meet my first congregation at the chapel for the destitute. I went home to tea, but could not eat. I went upstairs and falling on my knees, poured out my soul to God for help. Lord, help me. Lord, help me, was all I could say, though I remained long in prayer. Exactly at six, I called on my 16 friends at the lodging house. My entrance was the signal for a general move. Bill Guest had finished dividing his hair and had done his best to look smart. Boz had fitted on his leg and, was, and all were instantly ready. Not one had shown the white feather. They laughed at each other and were all greatly excited. Who will lead up was bawled out by the red slop man, and it was agreed that we should go two abreast. I and Boz, the wooden-legged man being the first. In this order, we marched down to King Street, over the Iron Bridge, through the butts to the preaching room. All the way, we attracted much attention, some remarking that we were the awkward squad, others that we were going to the rag shop, while others exclaimed, that beats all. But what was to them a cause of merriment was to me a source of great anxiety. As I walked on quietly with the wooden-legged man, I could not keep back my tears. Lord, help me was still my earnest prayer. On my arriving at the room, I found my new friends with the new shirt, and his two companions had already taken their seats. Also three well-known characters, Liz, Richard, Leach, and Sproul. Two shillings would have been a good price for the wardrobe of all three. They were soon followed by the prodigal son and four others. In all, 27 persons. I had provided the Religious Tract Society's penny hymn book and handed one to each. Taking my place behind a table, I gave out the page. Few could find the hymn, but all pretended to. And when I set the tune, the old hundredth, I found that not one of them, because back then, by the way, the hymn books, and still much in England, hymn books don't have the, the notes. Okay, you're just supposed to know random tunes. You've got the written words, and then the preacher announces the tune, and then everybody sings it to that tune. But anyways, um, I found that not one of the men. Okay, here we go. Uh, let's see, I found that not one of the men and only one of the women could join in singing, and that one was the so-called Jenny Lynn. I could have dispensed with her help, for she began singing before she knew what the tune was, <laughs> and she had a screeching voice the effect of which my nerves was something that like produced a sharpening of a saw with a file. 
This caused a general laughter through the congregation. I had intended to sing five verses, but was glad to give up with three. What Jenny's success was in singing in the streets and public houses, I know not, but I know I was afraid to join her a second time, though my friends gave me credit for being a tolerably good singer. So ludicrous had been the whole performance that many of the congregation were almost convulsed with laughter, and I did not think it prudent to engage in prayer until they were in a more serious state of mind. So I requested them to sit down. I began to tell them about my reasons for beginning a place of worship for the destitute of my visit to London, what I saw and the vow I made, told them I had broken the vow, been afflicted, and again vowed and prayed for help, and told them of my own conversion to God and how long I had served Him and how happy I was in His love, but above all, told them of the love of Jesus Christ and dying to save sinners from hell and bring them to heaven, pointed out the dreadful consequences of despising God's mercy and misery of a life of sin, and besought them all at once to seek salvation through the shed blood of the Redeemer. I have spoken to many congregations, but to none more attentive than these 27. Oh, how my soul did yearn in love to those miserable beings, the young prodigal, the wanderer from home, the wretched son of praying parents, writhed in agony, some wept, and all were serious. I then proposed prayer and told them that they might, they might stand, sit, or kneel, just as they liked, but they all knelt, and ere we rose, the Spirit of God worked with power. Liz, Richard, and the old man with the large spectacles remained on their knees after the others had risen. They both afterwards confessed that they had not prayed for years. So, I'm going to stop there with, that, um, with the end of that and tell you that basically um, this was the beginning of John Ashworth's ministry for 30 years. Um, amongst those people that and 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 how I would just ask you just uh how how many people of notoriety and churches of notoriety and stuff do you think that joined in and became his friends not really any not really any he was alone in it he was alone in it and so I wanted to bring out to you a story of a character in church history that you'll probably never hear of in all the church history books. Okay, Didn't get involved in any controversies like Martin Luther and have to uh, go through that. He, he had been called to uh, preach the gospel among the poor, among the forgotten. And I would say there's a great need for that in our day. You can, you can be distracted with all the politics of the day. Um, be really tore up about that all the time, worried about that, whether or not your paycheck's going to be as good as your dad's was because the current president's ruined everything. You can be worried about all these things, or or if you're in Christ, you can allow the Spirit of God to do in you like you did in John Ashworth. And, you know, I personally think that any great work of God that, he might do, might be pleased to do in these days is probably going to be through young people, through young people like y'all that are not ashamed, that Christ has just gripped and you are living for a heavenly home, for eternity, like John Ashworth was. And you don't, it's, you're not ashamed to say, yeah, I'm not really pursuing that big money. I'm not, I don't really care about that. I'm pursuing Christ. I'm pursuing 
eternal rewards, right? And uh, so what uh, I, I want to maybe just point you to in relation to John Ashworth here to uh, flip over with me to Matthew 5 real quick. Excuse me, maybe Matthew 6. Well, got to decide. There's so much of it to... Uh, we could... But how about first Matthew 6, 25 and through verse 34. I know I mentioned this a few minutes ago. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not so much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care or care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, remember how I've told you before that, and I, I, I've got to grab the date again, but chapters and verses were added later. And it's helpful. It's helpful for us to be able to say, turn to here or go look at verse such and such. But oftentimes it really messes up the reading. So think about how Jesus is preaching here, proclaiming truth here. And he didn't pause here and say, all right, that's the end of one, one chapter. We'll get back to chapter 7 next week. He kept going. So let's look at what he says after he finished there and see how it ties in to the story of John Ashworth and what we, we just read. He goes on to say, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's I. Now, um, remember the man that comes, the poor, rich and the poor man that come into your assembly, right? Why is it, why is it that the poor man was treated in such a way, and is still in our day? Why? Because what do we do in our hearts when we see him? Yes, right. Well, he's that way because. He's that way because. Now, what does Romans 1 and 2 
Maybe hold that place in, in Matthew 7. Let's tie in some other scriptures. By the way, what does anybody know what it's called in, in Bible hermeneutics? In other words, the methodology of interpreting. Does anybody know what, what's called the analogy of faith? Anybody ever heard that term before? It's okay if you haven't. All right, the analogy of faith is the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So, anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress in here? Okay, yeah. Um, and, and John Bunyan is just, it's like everything that he's saying is referring to some Scripture somewhere, and it's all tying together. He sees the whole big picture, okay, of how all this ties together. And that's what's happening here as we're looking at these different passages, okay? Um, in Romans chapter 1, he's describing at the end of chapter 1, and I know we looked at this actually at the beginning of class this year. He's describing the, the wickedness of man. So looking in verse, just let's finish up by looking at verse 28 and reminding how he goes into chapter 2. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this is all men and women, women all over the world, all people in Adam. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We should not have a chapter break here, and then it would be so much more potent. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge... Practice the same things. So, looking back at that list, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, we could just go on and on, and in here, and, and the last word could, would, could be this, judging. Okay? You're all these things, and then we can only see it in, I can only see it in Joseph. I can only see, I, I can only see that in him. I can only see it in that guy that's walking down the street on the other side of the tracks. I can see it in him, but I can't see it in me. Until, until a new birth has taken place in your life. And that's where the beginning of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5 here, he begins with, Blessed are the, anybody know? Poor in spirit. That's a work of God. That's a work of God. To cause someone to no longer think, I, I, I am good, but instead to go, I am bad. <laughs> I, am, I am wretched. I am blind. I am miserable. And to then hunger and thirst for righteousness, for true righteousness. And therefore, we'll understand the directive of Jesus in Matthew 7 to judge not, because now, now they see that as I have been all my life, able to find the sin in others, I've had this giant log in my eye. My little boy, when I was reading this to them at home, <laughs> he's a pretty sharp little fella. He says, uh, he says, well, Dad, the guy with the splinter in his eye probably got it from you, with, from your log, <laughs> from the log that's in your eye. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said, well, that's pretty, that's pretty good there. That might be right. So, um, so the point is, the point is here, through the story of John Ashworth that we just read, 
what God did in his life through looking at Romans 1 and 2 and Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 and James 2, what I hope that you will see is that the great need, because what I don't want is for someone to go, wow, that's, you know, that's good stuff, so I'm going to make a, a fleshly human decision that I'm going to do better. I'm going to, I'm going to be less judging. I'm going to be nicer to poor people. I'm going to invite poor people to my church. That's not the point. The point is, is that the great need is a new life in you. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me, out of his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. That's the story of John Ashworth. The story of John Ashworth is Christ in him. It's Christ. Okay? I'm not lifting him up as a hero. I'm saying that it is, it is Christ in him that... Um, that began to live a life totally different than the religious world around him. Okay, And that's the great need of every person in this room is Christ in them, living in them, a new, a, a new birth, a new life that results in someone who is not so quick to, to judge others but to see their own sin and then therefore to with compassion and mercy, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy, with compassion and mercy, take God's good news to that person who we see as, as dirty and wretched and evil. All right? And so that's where we'll end today. We'll get you guys out of here a little bit early and we'll stop and pray. But I just want to challenge you with all these things and ask yourself lots of questions. Ask God to search your heart in these things. It's my great desire to see God stir up young people in this day, turn them, turn them away from all this frivolous garbage that we're so full of, all this social media and playing around and, and wasting our lives and wasting our time and, and bringing all this trash into our brains of, of the world and then at the same time being encouraged by the adults around you to pursue riches. Why? Coffin lid's still going to close on you. But if you have Christ, you have eternal life, then, I mean, what, what is there to lose? What is there to lose but then to, to give all of your life for the Lord like John Ashworth did? And nobody, if, if somebody wouldn't have preserved his writings, nobody ever even really know anything about him, okay? But he'll have rewards. He'll have rewards at the judgment seat, and you know what he'll do with those? He'll take them and throw them down and say, I'm unworthy. And he'll say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus one who gets all the glory. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity it was today to be reminded my own self of, of Christ, the life of Christ in a man, in church history, your church that you are building for your glory, to the praise of the glory of your grace. And I pray that you would be pleased to do that very same kind of work in every, every person in here. Lord, statistically, statistically, it's, it's not likely that, that all of the kids in here will, will serve you in that way. But your power is greater than statistics. And I ask you, Lord, that you'd be pleased so that that man would praise your name, would glorify you. Would you be pleased to work strongly in the lives of every person in here through some of these stories, but mostly through your word, the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right.
You guys. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my Lord. The friends spoke in
Katie, do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ is your Saviour and do you promise to obey him as your Master and Lord? Katie, your profession of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptize your name of the Father and the shall be 